Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today is Friday, June 9th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, what is going on? Matty, happy Friday, y'all. Happy Friday. Um, Don't forget, we got Father's Day. Just want to wish everyone a happy Father's Day one week in advance. This is the this is the bit that won't die on this show <laughs> because I won't let it. But I honestly am doing it out of, out of the goodness of my heart. I'm trying to get people Hero. to like remember, hey, I have to buy a gift for my dad in a week. That's basically what I'm trying to Father's do. Father's is always so funny because you go to the stores and like every single store just stereotypes dads so hard. And like, yes, every piece of like uh, decoration or gift that you see, it's going to be about golf, beer, or like farting yeah i was gonna say like i don't pay attention to my kids happy father's day to me (laughs) like everyone just stereotypes dads so hard but um hey we have two really good dads here one one each for anyone who's confused about nick and i are not brothers but um (laughs) yeah two great dads so happy early father's day to pete and mike yes happy father's day guys uh fantastic humans fantastic people it's like the most generic group of names like Put four white guys in a room, and I guarantee you get <laughs> Matt, Nick, Pete, and Mike. <laughs> That's a guarantee. I love it. <laughs> All right. I also guarantee this episode is going to be fun. Let's do it. I just want to say a quick word on what's going on with the wildfires in Canada and how that's relating to the U.S. Um, basically, massive wildfires in Canada. Last time I checked, there was over 200 separate fires that are out of control. Those are ongoing, so Nick and I are going to wait until next week to actually talk about it in full. Hopefully, we have a positive update. Um, but for right now, smoke from that fire has been moving down into the U.S., which is being felt hardest in New York, where I am. Um, I saw that we set a record high for worst air quality that we've had here in in New York City. Um, And unfortunately, that is not unique to just New York. So right now, our thoughts are going out to the people in Canada where the wildfires are actually going on and the people in the proximity of that wildfire where smoke is impacting their air quality. Um, This is something that we will likely see more of with climate change. This is going to be Hopefully not something that is normal, but something that we see a lot more often than we do now. All right, time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Seth Bornstein of the Associated Press, who writes, Earth is really quite sick now and in danger zone in nearly all ecological ways, study says. A new report by international scientist group Earth Commission says that the Earth has pushed past seven of the eight scientifically established safety limits for both the well-being of people and the loss of natural areas. The study analyzed climate, air pollution, phosphorus and nitrogen contamination of water from fertilizer use, groundwater supplies, fresh surface water, the unbuilt natural environment, and the overall natural and human built environment. So those are those eight categories that we just kind of ran through extremely quickly. 
Um, it's in the show notes if you want to look into what each of those means. The only one of those categories that is not at a global danger point right now is air pollution. And that being said, there are local and regional danger levels that have been reached for air pollution. So even that one threshold that we haven't reached all throughout the world, it doesn't mean that everywhere in the world has amazing air quality. Yeah, so the co-chair of Earth Commission, Joyita Gupta, said that if the Earth got an annual checkup the way that humans do, the doctor would say that the Earth is quite sick right now and this sickness is impacting the people living on Earth. The scientist who wrote the report added that this is not a terminal diagnosis and that the planet can recover if changes are made, including decreasing use of coal, oil, and natural gas and improving the way that we treat the land and water. So this isn't the first report that Earth Commission's put together, but the report added justice as an element to be looked at for Earth's ecosystems, which put a spotlight on how different nations, different species, and even different generations are impacted by climate change. The report highlighted that even at one degree of warming, there's a huge amount of damage to be expected. So while 1.5 degrees Celsius is still the goal, we shouldn't expect things to be normal if we can keep warming to 1.5 degrees. And also worth throwing out, we aren't on pace to do that right now. We are on pace to go above 2.0 degrees Celsius of warming. So things are going to get really hot, really dry. Storms are going to get worse. Like this is all predictable things that, that we should expect before things start to get better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm shocked even that air pollution is not at a global danger point because, um, with all of the heat and with all of the uh, consistent use of, of um, carbon intensive energy processes, mm-hmm. it's just going to make air pollution worse and worse and worse. And we're already seeing that heat is making air pollution worse in, in some areas of the world. But yeah, I mean, we need to get below that 1.5 degrees and or even at 1.5 degrees and uh, there just needs to be so much more done. It's It's still just an insane issue, so... Yeah. And the good news is like, we are on the right track. What I will say is we are moving far too slowly. And I I think this is the part that's so frustrating as an environmentalist or just like someone who's tapped into this sort of thing is people have been blowing the alarm whistles about climate change for years. And if we just listened to scientists, listened to the global community in 2000, you know, in 1990, even in 2010, we're looking at a much different world. And I think that like right now, the market is trending towards more electric vehicles. The market is trending towards more renewable energy. The market is trending towards rapid decarbonization. But the issue we're running into is we have to do it faster than the market is projecting. And that's where all these important incentives come in. But like if we would have just done this, mm. You know, we, we could have gone along a slow pace and we wouldn't need to say, hey, within the next 10 years, no more gasoline powered cars could be sold because it would have just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that like that's where incentives come in. That's where policy comes in. And unfortunately, that's where people have the opportunity to say, well, why are we being forced to, to do this so fast? Like let things happen on their own. They, they would have. We just kind of missed that boat. And now we we need to catch the boat that we missed. Yeah, exactly. Need to catch up on all the things we missed out on. And what you were just saying 
like we saw the signs in 2000 and 2009 and 1990s. What about the guy that we brought up on the show from 1977 yeah. or something like that? Do you remember that? Yeah, the first scientist that brought it to Exxon. Yeah, exactly. Had we listened to him, what a, what a place we'd be in now. All right, let's move on to our next story from Reuters, where Sabrina Val writes, Exxon signs, oh, speak of the devil, Exxon signs <laughs> decarbonization contract with steelmaker Nucor. Exxon announced last week that it had signed a carbon capture and sequestration contract with U.S. steelmaker Nucor Corporation. Val writes, this technology needs to gain scale before becoming profitable, which I'm glad she brought up because carbon capture is such an interesting topic where like, it's just not where it needs to be in terms of the size and the scale of the industry. But a lot of oil and, and gas manufacturers, all of those big corporations will say, hey, we don't need to lower what, what we're doing. And you can still pay for our gas, pay for our oil. Things are fine. We're just going to capture the carbon. Mm -hmm. but, but it doesn't work like that because we can't capture the amount of carbon that's being emitted into the atmosphere. So, you know, it's not, we say this all the time, but like, it's not a silver bullet. It's not the answer. It's a part of it. Yeah. But it's just not at the scale where it needs to be, like Val said. Yeah. And so Exxon's $17 billion energy transition strategy is focused mostly on reducing emissions from its fossil fuel operations and charging its clients to do the same. Some European fuel giants have begun to invest in renewables, but Exxon still remains committed to fossil fuels. This contract with Nucor projects the transportation and storage of up to 800,000 metric tons per year of CO2 emissions beginning in 2026. So Exxon also estimates that its carbon capture projects would need to grow by 7.6 billion metric tons by 2050 to reach the IEA's net zero emissions goals. And just to kind of put that into scale, this is what we were talking about earlier with how like it's just not at scale yet. The project that was signed with Nucor Corporation, it would take roughly 9,500 more of those to mitigate climate change and get us to net zero with only carbon capture. So like, like I said, it's an important piece of the puzzle, but it's not the answer there. And to that credit, there is no one answer. Like nothing yeah. is the answer. Maybe you could just like bring up some of the other answers, so to speak, to like carbon capture, because not, like you said, 9,500 projects, like that's, that's just not like even feasible. Yeah. And I mean, it's a good question. Like with, with that if you want to get that number of projects down, increase solar, increase wind, increase electric vehicles, all of those things like battery storage. Um, yeah. Basically everything that's going to make our electrical system more efficient and less reliant on fossil fuels. And same with our transportation sector, mm -hmm. um, make buildings more efficient so that they're not just leaching heat out. Yeah. When you go to heat the building, so less energy is required to heat it. Like those are all projects that are going to add up that are going to make a difference along with carbon capture. So if you are interested in carbon capture, you're listening to this now. We have a really cool interview that I actually just recorded before Nick and I sat down. It's going to be coming out 10 days from today on June 19th. And we talked a bit about carbon capture, how it relates to algae, um, how it relates to lichen and actually how this all relates to paints and coatings. So Really cool interview to look forward to. Heck yeah. Nice. Sounds like it's going to be really interesting. So stoked. Yeah. Check it out. So 
It is now time for this week's environmental policy roundup. Germany and Denmark signed an offshore wind agreement to connect at least three gigawatts of energy capacity by the early 2030s. Two gigawatts will be transmitted to Germany and 1.2 gigawatts will go to mainland Denmark. For reference, one gigawatt can power roughly 300,000 homes. So we're talking about over 900,000 homes here that will be powered by offshore wind. Arizona officials announced late last week that the state will stop allowing new developments within the greater Phoenix area due to decreasing groundwater levels. A study found that roughly 4% of the area's demand for groundwater will not be able to be met within the next 100 years under current development conditions. The International Energy Agency released its market update for June, which projected 107 gigawatts of global renewable energy capacity additions in 2023, bringing the total capacity to 440 gigawatts. Solar photovoltaic additions will make up two-thirds of this year's increase in capacity, while solar manufacturing capacity is also set to double. Wind power additions are expected to grow by roughly 70% this year, and IEA Executive Director Faith Birrell said solar and wind are leading the rapid expansion of the new global economy. So we now have two stories that have been disheartening, I'll say, to the West of, of, of this country. One last week with State Farm no longer insuring any new homes in California, basically pulling out of the state. Um, that's big. That should be like a, oh my gosh moment. Oh, oh Nikes moment. Mm-hmm. And now Arizona announcing that you cannot build a new development within the greater Phoenix area. That should also be like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Why is the West you know, completely shutting things down almost not, not, that's not that it's not that dramatic, but like, it should be a wake up call to people yeah. to say things are not going to, going to go well in the next few years here. If we don't really start to pick up on, on climate change and, and, and uh, reducing our emissions. Yeah. And, and I guess two things that are important there is like, it's not going to be a quick turnaround. Like we, we need to understand that because of how long carbon and methane stay up in the atmosphere, like, if we turn things around tomorrow, completely decarbonize, completely get everything more efficient, you know, change everything about the way society has operated for the past hundred years here. Yeah. Like we're still going to have increasing temperatures for the next 40 years, probably because of, of all of that. I mean, that's where carbon capture, like we talked about earlier, comes in like that could reduce that number if we can start doing it at scale. But yeah, things are going to continue to get worse things are not going to get rapidly better while we rapidly modify our system. Um, yeah. But I guess to your point, like those two stories, what they jump out and say to me is anyone who says like, Oh, I don't care about climate change. You know, it's not my problem. It's my, it's going to be my grandkids problems. It's not, it's here. It is on our doorstep and we can't keep ignoring it the way that a lot of policymakers around the world have ignored it for the last 20 years. No, absolutely agree. All right. As always, those three stories are in your show notes. If you want to read any of them for some more detail, we are going to take a quick break and we got two more for you when we get back. Today's 
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, three forever chemicals makers settle public water lawsuits by Ben Castleman, Ivan Penn, and Matthew Goldstein of the New York Times. At the end of last week, Chemours, DuPont, and Cortiva agreed to a settlement worth over a billion dollars related to claims that they contaminated drinking water across the U.S. with per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, which are also called PFAS for short, or nicknamed forever chemicals. The article points out that PFAS are linked to liver damage, weakened immune systems, and several types of cancer, among other things. Um, They also linger in the body and in the environment without naturally breaking down, so that's where they get the nickname Forever Chemicals. They are used in firefighting foams, nonstick coatings, and other products that have contaminated soil and water supplies, and they've caused billions of dollars in damages to human health and pollution cleanup. The same day this article was released, Bloomberg News reported that 3M had reached a deal worth at least $10 billion with U.S. cities and towns over claims related to PFAS. 3M declined to comment. While some environmentalists called this an important step forward, others were more cautious, including Eric D. Olson of the Natural Resources Defense Council, who said that this would take a bite out of the problem but not fully solve it. Yeah, so the deal with the three chemical companies that we mentioned in the beginning is set to resolve lawsuits involving water systems that have already detectable levels of PFAS and waters that are required to monitor for PFAS contamination by the Environmental Protection Agency. The problem that was alluded to when Nick brought up Eric D. Olson of the NRDC is that this excludes some water systems and it wouldn't resolve any damage or personal injury claims for people who have gotten sick from the chemicals. So this is here to help environment. This is here to help the cities and the towns that have been impacted by PFAS. But for those people that were impacted with liver failure, with types of cancer, with other respiratory illnesses, because of these chemicals being pumped into a bunch of different things that we rely on, like nonstick coating, you know, like they aren't going to really benefit from this at all. They've just suffered the the brunt of the impact. And now it's like, well, don't worry. It's not going to happen to anybody else. Yeah. That's not enough though. You know, that's just not enough for people who have suffered and for families who have suffered and lost people because of, because of these companies, uh, actions. And it's like a tale as old as time. Mm -hmm. It really is. And there's a movie out there with James Gandolfini in it. And I'm completely blanking on the name, but it's about, his son drinks, there's contaminated water uh, in the town that he's living in. And then his son like drinks it and ends up getting uh, some sort of disease. I can't even remember what it is, but it really brings to life like the reality 
of what people go through when you know their bodies are are tainted by these these forever chemicals. It's just frustrating uh, to have companies that are uh, showing neglect and and not actually doing anything yeah. uh, in terms of compensating the people who are who have been affected. Yeah, and, and I guess frustrating is the 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 word that I was jumping to here as well. You know, for me, the thing that bothers me the most is like with unchecked growth, you get these companies that are just making more money than any one company really needs. And they are going to be able to just pay for this as a settlement and then act like they did, you know, they did the right thing. Karma's on their side again. Yeah. We're good. Like that's not how this works. You, You can't just pay people off and then expect like goodwill from the people. What we need is to make sure that the environment is protected from something like this happening again. What we need is to make sure that those people who have been impacted, you know, take care of their medical fees. Yeah. Because at, at best, at best, this was something that was either neglected or misunderstood. But at worst, and I think it's probably more likely that this is one of these scenarios, they probably knew. Yeah. And they probably just didn't care because they were like, you know what? Our bottom line is going way up and yep. we'll deal with the fallout later because that's that's what we see with these things all the time. And my family doesn't live in X area, so I'm good. I don't need to worry about that. Yeah. You know? You know, it's, 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 it's a little similar to that, but what you just brought up is like a lot of companies that deal with fracking, none of those executives for, for, for those companies are drinking that water but they are the first to say that it's safe and it's not harming drinking water. So like a hundred percent, ah, it's just so disheartening that, you know, we have all this information and unfortunately it's easy to just like buy some sort of forgiveness, but not from, not from the people who are impacted, not from the ecosystems that are impacted. Yeah. No question. All right, let's move on to our last quick hit of the week by Andrew Wasley and others from The Guardian who write more than 800 million Amazon trees felled in six years to meet beef demand. So this is a really important article that's going to show why when we talk about ways we can impact our our personal environmental impact, we'll bring up not eating beef or eating less beef or drinking less cow milk. You know, those things are an easy way to help do your part to stop deforestation. Obviously, it's going to come down to more corporations. It's going to come down to more countrywide solutions. But if you want to feel like you're making a personal impact, those are some easy things. So more than 800 million trees were cut down in the Amazon in the last six years to feed, as the authors put it, the world's appetite for Brazilian beef. The beef industry in Brazil has promised to avoid farms that are linked to deforestation, but the data from this report suggests that 1.7 million hectares of the Amazon was deforested for meat exports. Cattle ranching was the number one cause for deforestation to hit all-time highs between 2019 and 2022 under then-President Jair Bolsonaro. Some of the meat that came from farms linked to deforestation could breach new European laws designed to fight deforestation in the supply chain. The law states that any products brought into the EU cannot be linked to any deforestation that happened after December 2020. Aid Environment found that Brazil's three biggest beef operators and exporters owned ranches linked to deforestation. JBS had 13, 
Marfrig had six and Minerva had three. These three companies had been repeatedly criticized for deforestation in their supply chain in the last decade. So this next part's a direct quote from the article that I'd like to just quickly read. So it says, more than 250 cases of deforestation were attributable to indirect suppliers, which are farms that rear or fatten cattle, but then send them to other ranches before slaughter. Meat companies have long said that monitoring the movements between ranches in their complex supply chains is too difficult. So basically what this whole article and this whole study comes down to is that deforestation is extremely dangerous. You know, we've talked about how deforestation impacts our ability as a planet to sequester carbon, especially in the Amazon, which are nicknamed the lungs of the earth. So what we're looking at now is how society has kind of indirectly supported deforestation of the Amazon for years through buying deforestation related beef. I just want to put into context how much 1.7 million hectares actually is. So if you know how big an acre is, it's 4.2 million acres. So that's how much of the Amazon was deforested just for meat exports. It lets you know how big of a problem it really is and how big of a role we play. And we always think we're like, oh, I'm one person. I can't make a difference. There's no way I can't make a difference. Mm Mm-hmm. If everyone has that mindset, nothing will change and it'll continue to be the same issues over and over again. We'll continue to deforest the Amazon and, and ruin the, the lungs of the earth and, and there'll be over uh, pollution and all that stuff. So yeah. we have to make a decision to not buy cow milk, to not buy beef, or just if you're going to buy it, make sure that you use it. Yeah. And make sure that it's not just going to waste. If you buy the beef and you, you know you can't use it, you know, in, in a night or two, just freeze it. Yeah. Because then we're going through no, uh, another whole process of buying more beef that we're not going to use. And it's just, it's just wasteful. So just buy what you use and, and uh, try and limit your consumption as well. Yeah. And, and I think what you just said at the end is really the key, like limit your consumption with anything. So in, in this case, it's good that we've seen in the last two years, like beef consumption in the U S is actually going down. Milk consumption in the U S is actually going down. So we're seeing alternatives kind of popping up, which is great. Um, what I will say is to your point about how can one person make a difference? Like you're right. It's collective action. One person can't, but if everyone has that attitude, nothing's going to happen. If everyone has the attitude that I am doing my part, you know, that's, that's what matters. And if you're listening and you're like, I could never give up X, you don't have to, right? Like there are people Mm who won't eat beef but they'll eat cheese and they're saying, you know, like I'm limiting my beef or my dairy consumption, but I'm not totally eliminating it. Mm-hmm. That's okay. You know, like perfect and good don't have to be enemies all the time. It's not, it's not a one or the other thing. So there's that side of this whole coin. And on the other side, what we need is more policy decisions, such as the one that we brought up in Europe, because if beef is grown sustainably and we're not deforesting the Amazon for cattle ranching, you know, we're looking at a very different industry with very different emissions. It's still going to emit more than chicken, than, than yeah. uh, fish, than lentils, than beans. But maybe it's not as terrible for the environment if we can kind of stop that, that beef factory farming machine that has really kept a lot of people like well-fed for a long time. Yeah, or even just slow that down. Just slow yeah. it down a little bit. So 
Yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement, though. All right. Sorry we got a little preachy there for uh, for anyone out there who's either like very pro-beef or very anti-beef. And it's like, yes, Matt and Nick, we know this already. Well, <laughs> I, I'm just saying, if you buy it, use it. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. If you're going to buy it, you better use it. And I'm saying that oat milk tastes better than, than cow milk. <laughs> grow up all right that'll do it for today's episode of tpt we will be back next friday for another episode but until then please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and you can follow our socials at planet today pod for more tpt nick chanusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout nick where can people hear more of your stuff you can hear more of my stuff at soundcloud.com slash budland cape and that is b-u-d-l-y-n-c-a-p-e go check me out y'all our logo was made by Kaylee Veet. This episode was guest hosted by my kitten, Penelope, who sat on my lap for like 20 of the 30 minutes. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.